Welcome to a new episode of Phone Talks, a podcast where we navigate the world of images through the medium of conversation. My name is Miriam Koyman, and I'm a curator at Phone. In this episode, Phone talks about fashion cycles, trend forecasting, and meta cringe, together with artist Sarah Swinar and trend forecaster Agustina Panzoni. Sarah Swinar is a New York-based contemporary artist who seeks to make sense of our current visual culture through photography, essayistic video works, collages, installations, and books. August Panzoni is a cultural researcher and trend forecaster. She is currently head of trends at the media company Dev to Stock, and with her account The Algorithm, she has made a following on TikTok by uncovering cultural narratives behind trends in the visual, fashion, and technology realms. This conversation introduces some of the ideas that are central to Sarah Swinar's solo exhibition at Phone, SS23. Such a pleasure to uh, to talk uh, with two of you today, Sarah Swinar and Agustina Panzoni. Uh, great to have you here in Foam Talks. And on the occasion of Sarah's exhibition at Foam, we might just head off with the very title of the exhibition, Spring Summer 2023. And Sarah, could you reveal to us why you chose this title for your show? Um yeah, I mean, the show kind of brings together different ways that trends happen over long and short time. So it features architecture that's been standing for, I guess, decades or not hundreds of years, but for very long stretches of time. And and then clothing that only lasted for a season. So it's thinking about obsolescence and value and how the things that are made with the most style are often the ones that become irrelevant the most quickly, but also how we live amongst all these relics of things that seemed worth making or seemed fashionable at the moment, but didn't quite stand the test of time. And the show explores that in uh, many different, many different strategies and in film and in photography. And have you always been interested in trends? Yes. Um, I mean, I've always been very attached to the kind of objects that get designed with a lot of optimism and with a lot of um, kind of flair, like things that you might look back on later and not quite understand, other they don't kind of have a logic later, um, and how these things are kind of... Um, indicative of some sort of failure or of the like promise of capitalism not quite working out but also how we become personally attached to these things and we live amongst them and we kind of save them anyway and thinking about this kind of connection between optimism and hope and the reasons we might acquire certain things and how we think they'll contribute to our lives and then the way those things actually happen over time and in real life. And then that's all connected to photography, too, and how photography sells these things to us and the huge role that photography plays in making things seem desirable. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think you also had your, um, uh, you also have a background in, uh, in graphic design and a relation to, um, I, I think it, in that sense, with that background, you know how to relate to the mechanisms behind advertisements, 
right? Yeah, I mean, I used to work at the New York Times, which isn't quite advertising, but no. was. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it felt like we were advertising ideas, even if they weren't actual objects, or maybe oftentimes it felt like that. But um, yeah, I had a lot of early experience, like trying to think about how an image or a headline would actually read in the real world versus how it seemed like it would read to a group of people who are making those decisions and how kind of things that seem decided on by someone who knows what they're doing are often just kind of random or happen to be the way they are. And that also extends to a lot of designed objects and other things. I really love how that translates into your work. Um, And actually, I couldn't have thought of um, like... We couldn't have thought of a better person to uh, to join this conversation than uh, than Augustina as a trend forecaster and, and cultural researcher. Uh, I think there are many similarities between uh, um, yeah the the works the, your practices basically, and um, yeah I I was actually wondering what does the designation of SS twenty three the title of Sarah's show. What does it mean to you in our current day and age? So I've been thinking a lot about the way that trends have cycled throughout history, you know? When you go back during the Roman Empire, like the the fashion trends would last for centuries, right? And then moving on to the 19th century and the 20th century, we started going into this 30-year cycle where trends started moving um, a lot faster and now we're here today when trends are moving at a such a rapid pace and there used to be this idea that fashion you know runway shows would set the trends but because of technology right now so much and, and the way that culture is moving online so much of the trends are happening and are being built in the by the internet and a lot of these runway shows are really just catching up with this rapid rapid cycle so to me, spring summer twenty-three means the an idea of a of a time in which newness should happen, but that is not really real because in reality newness is happening all the time, just in the palm of your hand. Yeah, it's almost like a sad title. Like before <laughs> it's arrived, it's already out of date. <laughs> But I also love what you just said about um, well the, the the historical ties that you um, or the pattern you've been drawing um, because well there is a line in Red Film uh, a video work that is kind of central to the exhibition and uh, we might talk about it more later uh, but yeah it's almost weird to explain this work with Sarah in this conversation. Uh, you you might give a much better explanation, but um, I think I could describe it as a, as a video essay of sorts in which Sarah is um, really throwing such interesting references to the viewer. And one line from the video work is, I'm talking about the new woman and a pattern which was invisible to the subjects when they lived it. Um, I think this really describes trend cycles in a way, but also the new woman, I think it's an interesting uh, starting point for the exhibition. It's connected to a work or series, I have to say, Doll Index. And Sarah, maybe could you explain 
the phenomenon of the new woman and why that was of interest to you? Yeah, I mean, the, so the new woman was kind of a late 19th century um, feminist phenomenon where women started, um, for example, wanting to wear pants <laughs> um, and wanting to relatable. Yes, <laughs> we should all have the luxury of wearing pants. Um, and I guess I can't remember exactly. Maybe it was connected to riding bicycles. I think, which is yeah, yeah. Um, but then it became this whole kind of early feminist um, movement for women to have more power and autonomy. Um, you know, whatever that looked like at the time. Um, and of course, there was a ton of cultural pushback and as the forward and backward uh, kind of waves of progress go, it kind of had a big movement and then had a big um, regression. And then, you know, now we're at some place today as a kind of legacy of that. And as Miriam has pointed out, it was also a kind of early period of starting to market things to women and women kind of finding um, autonomy or empowerment through buying things, which, you know, is maybe not the way that most of us think about feeling empowered, but um, I think was an important avenue as one of the kind of few spaces in which women could build identities at that time. And obviously, we're still kind of in that zone today. So yeah, I think it has a lot of relevance. I, I really liked what you said about long trends in the Roman Empire, too. Um, like, I really like thinking about how these things never change and kind of keep coming back. Yeah, there's certain patterns that repeat themselves. And I feel like that's the way in which trend forecasters look at, at the past and at history. You know, you look, you keep on seeing the same patterns over and over. Um, I feel like I, I keep on talking about how you know, this whole conversation about quiet luxury, you know, and like, of course, the minimalism is going to come back during a recession. And like, even during the Great Depression, you would see the wealthy cutting off the emblems of their cars, you know, to like, <laughs> look like they were like the rest of us, you know, it all <laughs> things that keep on repeating themselves, you know. Um, and that is uh, that pattern finding is a big element of, of trend forecasting in addition to to other things. Um how do you sort of expand your thinking to understand those patterns throughout centuries even? Yeah, I mean, I studied economics, right? So my approach to trend forecasting has always been more of a data approach, but I also like to research into what has been, what happened in the past because it really helps inform. So it's it's kind of an, an ongoing practice in a way. Um, the data analysis is always part of it, but then in the contextualizing the data uh, comes all these other additional research that that I kind of keep on doing on my own. And it's it's allowed me to investigate on many different sources of culture and like the past as well. And I'm really happy we were just mentioning about um, the doll index and this idea of how you get commercialized different images of your se of what you can be and kind of, kind of how that started in the 19th century. Um, because when we're moving into what it feels like today, where we have all these different cores coming all at once, um, it feels like we keep on getting these multiple ideas of who we could become. And it's kind of like imploded 
it's getting to a point where people are referencing their personalities in terms of aesthetics. You know, it's like really affecting our own personal identities. Um, so who even is the new woman, you know, when you can be all these different images that get commercialized to you all the time at the same time? <laughs> yeah. And you're like stuck in a loop of being the person you already said you were. I guess that's kind of what you're saying. Like you get feedback on the version of yourself that you put out there and then you keep trying to be that person. And at some point I felt like during the pandemic, I was like, am I that person? <laughs> and is anyone like, obviously um, our social media identities are not our real selves, but you kind of lose track of what your priorities even are on those mediums and why you're doing certain things. I, I think there's also been a big, at least in my community, I see a lot of people kind of stepping back from having these super online personas. But then we're also in our 30s. Maybe I, like for teenagers, it seems like a whole different uh, ball game. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I also think that in the, there's so much of performance that we do every day. And mm -hmm. social media has made the whole life into a performance, the fact that you can share everything. So that I think there's that distinction of where does the performance start and what is behind the mask um, is something that we ask ourselves all the time. And, and that because of all these images being commercialized to us so often, um, it becomes very, very difficult to, to make sense out of the mess and like, really find your own, your own self as, as a woman. So in a yeah. way, like, I loved what your video was saying about how this is another form of trapping women, you know, in, that, we're, that we're living on right now. Um, because it, it, is, it kind of feels sometimes like a little bit of a trap. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, also, the Red Song uses theory from Maurice Merleau-Ponty and Lacan and uh, Franz Fanon, who all in different ways kind of talked about like identity formation through kind of seeing ourselves through the eyes of others or how like you figure out who you are based on how other people see you and how you can't really form yourself without the gaze of someone else. And I don't know what they would have said about this time. Like that's something I'm always thinking about, but the idea that you're being seen and watched by a million anonymous eyes and that you can't really form yourself because you're just being split apart by all the different people who are watching you is a really central theme to the piece. And even it was made like five years ago. Now it feels so different even now. Like the idea of trying to kind of form a self in this world feels very very difficult. And another um, text that has been really formative for my work is Shoshana Zuboff's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which is also about kind of needing space to separate from these worlds and how we can't figure out who we are or how to act ethically without space apart. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's interesting, like it is totally connected. And people have been talking about these things for like 100 years. And yet, we haven't figured it out we've just made it worse in a way <laughs> i think that also makes red film so extremely relatable at least to me but maybe we could go back to dual index for a second 
the basis of this series are photographs of dolls created in the 1940s to record French fashion from 1715 to 1906. So you re-photograph these archival images, you cut them into pieces and added a variety of objects traditionally associated with, with fuel consumers. Um, can you tell us a bit more about this process? Yeah, so it starts with these images from um, the Met Museum online archive, which I at some point was just spending like hours looking through. Um, and they ha it, there are these photographs that are from the Costume Institute collection, and they acquired them from the Museum of the City of New York. And they only have the photographs, so they don't have the actual clothing and they don't have the dolls. They just have these pictures. And I really like them because they're kind of badly photographed. Like the shadows are kind of weird and they're just very creepy. Like I feel like they, there is kind of a slip of like the strangeness of these kind of constricting fashions for women in the way they're photographed. Like they, there's something that's not quite right about the whole thing. Um, and also they had these poses that were kind of similar to econ models that I was looking at as well. Like um, some of the other photos in the show um, feature models from the econ site Essence.com, which is like this giant repository for all kinds of different brands. And a lot of their success lies with um, photographing everything in this like one, two, three, almost robotic um uh, type of photography where everything looks identical and you can compare hundreds and thousands of different objects or pieces of clothing against each other um, and you can see what it looks like on a person but the people almost fall back and aren't real humans like they look like mannequins and I have been inviting those models into my studio and photographing them kind of as real people and filming them and kind of uh, getting outside of the way that their image on the internet um which is a bit of a tangent but like the dolls reminded me of those photos again going back to things kind of repeating over time and i was questioning why people even pose in that way like why is that the best way to show clothing couldn't it be another way like i think i mentioned in another talk about the show why people don't pose with their arms out like wouldn't that be the best way to see a piece of clothing but somehow these like gestures have been solidified over time. Um, and then so I started rebuilding these photos in my studio using other objects that I had bought online. So from eBay, um, which is a kind of marketplace that I really love, like it speaks to my interest in value and why one thing might seem worth $50 to one person and $5 to another and the kind of arbitrariness of our attachments to objects and how important they seem. Um, and then also from Amazon and Shein and kind of these evil um, uh, fast fashion and e-com sites. Um, and just thinking about like how much choice is out there, how these things get marketed to us, how it's all kind of building into a fantasy like the doll did 100 years ago. Um, and just how much stuff there is. Like I wanted to make a version of a still life that I had never seen before. It's essentially an elaborate still life photo. Like it has tons and tons of objects kind of worked into it. Um, and in the end, yeah, it's all of this kind of um, different 
time period of material that were largely marketed to women and that have kind of different levels of trendiness and importance. Um, and then there's a text at the bottom that describes kind of where each object came from and some kind of excerpts of descriptions of the objects. Some of them are very poetic, like people trying to describe um, the scale or the color of something or why they like it. And then others are like very utilitarian kind of groups of numbers from Amazon or Shein. It's interesting how uh, on the one hand, your work speaks a lot about fashion in a way, but also this, uh, that you also show this focus on on the models um, and, and, and indeed having the doll in doll index, uh, the reference to mannequins. And um, Agustina, if we shift our focus from the clothes to the models of today, um, do you also see new trends or changes on this level? Yeah. Um, so for the past like 10 to 15 years, we're seeing more representation in fashion. So the standards of beauty have um, widened, which is fantastic. We're seeing uh, more races being represented, size, gender, height, disability, age, um, which has been truly, truly amazing. And I think this will continue in the long run because it aligns with the values of the newer generations, such as Gen Z. Um, but right now, in this moment, However, it seems like we're having some kind of pushback Hi. to fitness and boobs and the bombshell idea with Ozempic everywhere. Apparently, boob uh, jobs are trending, buccal fat removal. <laughs> and, um, and it is interesting that we're moving back into this time that feels like it resembles the 90s and, and the Y2K. Um, some people say it is purely revivalism. Um, some say this is a return to the natural phase, which, you know, there's, I think, natural is with nothing. Um, but it, it supposedly responds to, like, the Instagram phase of, like, the fillers that we got accustomed. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, once again, like, the bodies of women being commercialized back to themselves and in the ways that they could change and, and, and be um, with the trend. That's actually interesting what you just said also in reference to the 90s because, Sarah, so many items appear in your work, even buildings, but also people. And yeah, I think Pamela Anderson is an interesting figure who recently entered your work, which also relates interestingly to uh, the trend of PAMCOR. Uh, so maybe, Sarah, you could first... Tell us something about what fascinates you about Pamela Anderson and what kind of roles she takes in, in the exhibition and in your praxis. Yeah, I mean, um, I photographed her because someone approached me from the New York Times and I was very busy, but I was like, I will drop everything. I have to <laughs> photograph. I was like, see you later. I'm going to a remote island in Canada to photograph him now. Um, and... I mean, I love her. I guess, like, we're obviously we're in a cultural moment of reevaluating women that were much maligned in the 90s or early 2000s, and we've realized we were unfair to them, um, like Tanya Harding or uh, Pamela or Monica Lewinsky, I guess, um, among others. 
But also Pamela is a compelling figure because she kind of has a bit of an irony in her self-presentation. You know, she's very smart. She actually like understands how she's been kind of absorbed and presented by the culture. And she is happy to play into that to some extent until she just isn't anymore. And that actually gives her quite a bit of power in this moment. I think like, um, obviously she was really disempowered when she was super famous. She was often like the um, subject of jokes. There was the whole sex tape thing, which I won't get into. Um, But uh, I think she's kind of come through it all. And she now sort of poses as if she understands what people want from her and she's going to give them 90% of that, but not 100. And I just really loved photographing her for this reason. Um, And yeah, I didn't really plan to use it in a show, but I think she kind of connects to the themes of the larger work about kind of um, how we value people and then discard them the same way we do objects, how kind of trends have real human repercussions how you know you're only as um worthy as the last thing you did in our culture in a lot of cases um i think there's a lot that her trajectory kind of speaks to about the kind of relentless novelty and obsolescence cycles in which we exist um and yeah i also just like I don't know. I wanted to show her in a way I hadn't seen her before, which was easier said than done. Like I, I was hoping she wouldn't wear any makeup and that's not happening. <laughs> and um, I kind of really tried to get her outside of the way that she's usually pictured, but also every time she poses, it's just like this super bombshell thing. So um, it's hard to get someone who's that solidified in their own image to do anything different. But I think the picture do succeed in the end and I'm really proud of them. Uh, I think it's an amazing portrait but what I also really love uh, having in the exhibition is the that you actually had video footage of the shoot itself so as you just said you really see how she's posing and moving being super conscious of of how she presents herself in front of the camera uh, that's it's a really fascinating footage. Um, and, um, yeah, August, could you introduce us to the phenomenon of PAMCOR? Yeah, I, it's funny because I think I totally agree in that we're in this time of reclaiming, you know, this, this, or or just reevaluating the way, like you said, that we, we've treated this woman in the past. But then when you look at PAMCOR, it's mostly her in the 90s. It's the image of in a time that is past, that people recreate her style, her makeup, her um, hairdos. And it's not really an, an, an appreciation of her as she is now. And it's yet again an, an image of a woman being commercial from the past, from a specific time in her youth, being commercialized mm-hmm. to us again. So in a way, it is very exciting that as culturally, we're kind of like reclaiming femininity in a very exciting way. It feels like the Barbie movie that just came out wants to do that too, talking about dolls. Um, but also 
because of the way that capitalism works, is still commercializing a standard that women should adhere to. And it's very much young, hot, you know, um, bombshell like. Um, so, so it is an interesting, interesting situation that we're going through right now. Yeah, but it's, it's really, it really shows us something about if you look at that, um, what you just said about Pamcor August, that, you know, that actually the beauty standards, they, in the end, they do not seem to change at all. Or even if they change a little bit, they will always change back to the old standard. Um, or is that too pessimistic of me to say? Um, I think that these cycles do work in ways that, they, that old ideas come back. But I do think that there's an overarching, like, positive, <laughs> net positive that we're moving towards with the whole inclusivity piece. Like, although right now it feels like we're in a time where we're kind of going backwards, um, the, the values that society has are very much for inclusivity, at least for the younger generations. So I'm hoping this is just going to be like a cycle upwards where, yes, we're going back to this for a little bit, but, you know, maybe next time we're going back at, to it for a little shorter and eventually we'll just, you know, have new new beauty standards. And the truth is that you do see a lot of, of, of different types of faces right now um, in the runway and e-commerce shots that you did before. Um, something that I do think about a lot as well is you know, the, the topic of the hour, which is a AI, right? And how that's going to change the faces that we see. Um, I don't know if you saw how Levi's was trying to bring diversity by bringing in AI models <laughs> to, to their site. <laughs> um, and, but I do think a lot about how, you know, if AI models are something that are, are, we're going to be living with them and we're going to keep on seeing like AI faces in so much of media, how will that change our view, our perception of, of beauty standards? Like, are we going to become, are we going to go completely against it and go for like the ultra raw blemishes on the face? Or are we going to completely accept this like AI version of perfect, unreal faces um, as, as the standard that we we'll, frankly will never be able to, to get to? So I don't know yeah. where that's going. I'm super interesting how that will feed into your future work, Sarah. How how do you now, as an artist, how are you reflecting on AI? I mean, I think in terms of like AI and models, like the reason thinness is such a premium is because it's related to. I mean, this is maybe like getting too theoretical, but like, uh, like it's related to sacrifice or to, and it's also related to youth. Like you're younger. When you're younger, you're usually thinner. And like, I, I'm actually really interested in when what happens when those things are not connected to real people or like, the, you know, the way an actual body works anymore. Because, yeah, maybe it won't have the same resonance for an AI model to appear very, very thin anymore. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely um, working on like having kind of those AI newscasters speak in a video that I'm making and thinking about it. But I don't, I don't necessarily like feel like it's that, I don't know. I worry about AI in the same way that like surveillance capitalism or like the monetization of our data just kind of happened. And because there was no precedent, we never said anything. And now it's so ubiquitous and there's no kind of governing body that can do anything about it. And I worry that AI, or it seems pretty clear that it's about to exist in the same space. Um, and that's something I might t 
talk about in a piece or just kind of try to engage with in a different way. Yeah, I think um, there in, in general, you know, there's so many overlapping interests here. So I'm glad you brought it up, uh, August, this uh, thing about AI. Uh, Sarah, maybe you could uh, say something about uh, your interest in kitsch. And I think there might be an, a nice connection with the phenomenon of meta cringe. So I was wondering if both of you could uh, elaborate a bit on that. Yeah, I mean, kitsch is like the first idea that I like was like, oh, I need to make art because I need to engage with this idea. Like it's something I've thought about for 15 years now. Um, and kind of the way that we use photographs and objects to imagine better versions of the world or versions of the world that are more palatable than actual reality. Um, I've talked a lot about Milan Kundera rip who <laughs> just died. Um, rest in peace. Um, his idea of kitsch, how it's sort of this like um, more sinister definition, the idea that kitsch is kind of anything we choose to look at in order to ignore that we are in actual bodies that are kind of failing and that the world will, or that we eventually will no longer be a part of the world and that kitsch can kind of be um, a political movement. It can be religion. It can be a lot of the images of advertising. Um, it's also connected to sort of ideas about good life fantasies and things that we kind of like larger ideas that we subscribe to in order to ignore what is difficult about being alive, essentially. And um, yeah, like so many products of fashion and advertising fall into these categories. Um, and there's also like a sadness to it. And but also it's something that we need and that keeps us kind of engaged in the world. So it's a very complicated topic even though usually we just think of kitsch as like ironically appreciated products of pop culture that aren't really that relevant anymore but I think it's a lot deeper than that yeah would you agree August what I kind of did is I analyze you know the, the, the whole like cringe idea through um the different layers of of irony right so we th there was such a social etiquette around social media of what could go and what could not go. And then cringe came up and it was a lot of, you know, like as a form of Southern Freudian entertainment. Um, and then <laughs> went into like ironic cringe, which took that cringe and made it into a performance. And then, and then we moved past it for post-ironic cringe where we found people such as Kim Kardashian saying, oh my God, I'm so cringe. And cringe gets commercialized. And, and meta cringe, it goes beyond that ironic detachment of, of, of ironic cringe and, and just says there's a value in cringe, there's a value in all these references that are merged together as well. Um, let's embrace being cringy together. So it, we see a lot in, in clothes, for example, like I talk a lot about the big red boots or Loewe's oh, yeah. pocket items, you know, uh, even like gif fashion are like the epitome of cringe, according to any gens here. They're being utilized as references in clothes, such as a recent collaboration between, I think it was Adidas and The Simpsons. You know that popular gif of Homer retreating back into the bush? Um, that is now printed onto clothes right now. All these different iconography that is being constantly bombarded to us and, and making into this fun, playful thing, which 
we at, at the agency I work for called MetaCringe. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's a, a wonderful analysis. An, an unrelated question uh, I have to you, Augustina, is if in the work you do, if you're often inspired by artists, if you look at the art world too. Yeah, so um, I studied economics, so my knowledge of art is very much like ongoing and in the art world is something that I'm constantly trying to include more into the work that I do. Um, however, for example, in my last report, I am analyzing this idea of identity um, in, in, in today and what it means to be authentic in a time in which you know, reality and the digital are merging and that is really affecting the way that we be see ourselves. So I looked at the works of Philip Kosick, um, who explores transhumanism. So that's just one example. Um, right now, I've been also looking into this whole thing of like anti-design, bad taste, chaos dressing, and then Dadaism and absurdism. Um, I've also been looking into um, which is related to is the situationists, you know, and this idea of how like rapidly circulating images turn individuals into actors um, who play different roles. Um, I mm -hmm. talked into in one of my recent videos about this idea of aesthetics as skins more than trends. Um, so like clown core, ballet core, a coastal cowboy, <laughs> um, all being more like costumes that we walk into and the new images that are that we can just like. Yeah, the costumes that we, we can pretend to be online versus, you know, our own subjectivity and our own reality, like the people that we are. Um, so I do look at it, but it's, it's ongoing knowledge that I'm, that I'm growing since my background was, was not really in that realm. And Sarah, I, I think you can, uh, you can already sense what question is coming. Um, is your work inspired by uh, trend forecasters like Agustina? Um, well, now I'm like, I have to ask Agustina a million questions after this. <laughs> um, like, it's actually, I mean, I've talked to color forecasters, but I've never talked to a trend for forecaster. And I'm like, oh my God, this is so relevant. And everything you're saying is so fascinating to me. Um, but I mean, yeah, like, I guess I try to look at trends in the same way, but I don't have the same kind of tools. So... Well, on that note, uh, I think we reached the end of our conversation, um, which means that it's time to introduce a new feature for our Foam Talks podcast. And of course, on this podcast, we talk a lot about artist practices, but there was a wish to make it a bit more tangible and interactive to our audiences. So we'll end this episode with a so-called photo recipe. It's a, it's a little instruction based on your practice, Sarah, to send everyone off with. So what have you been cooking for us? <laughs> um, my idea is that you take one red object from each room of your house and make a still life. And make sure you have a soft object and a hard object. And if you only have one room in your house, take at least four objects. That's great. <laughs> I need to think about this. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Um, I'd love to end on this enigmatic note. And um, I would say thank you very much for this uh, 
wonderful conversation. Thank, Thank you. you. It's great. I had such a good time. <laughs> yeah. The exhibition SS23 by Sarah Swinar is on display until 27 September at FOAM in Amsterdam. And if you want to see and read more, you can find an in-depth essay on Sarah's work, including many of the images discussed here, on foam.org explore. Stay tuned for our upcoming Phone Talks episodes in the context of Kismet, our multi-year project focused on historical and contemporary visual artists from Turkey diving deeper into the works of Ara Guler and Etche Gülko. Thanks for listening.